Hi, listeners. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Entertainment Weekly's Best of Shows. We have a special extra piece of bonus Best of the Decade look-back content for you this week. Uh, Kristen and I are going to be doing our chat about the best dramas of the decade, and then after a short break, Kristen will be talking to the patron saints of our podcast and two of the finest showrunners in this excellent decade for television, Robert and Michelle King, the creators of The Good Wife, The Good Fight, and Evil uh, on CBS and CBS All Access, uh, will be chatting with us about their personal favorite shows of the decade. So listen to us and stick around to listen to them. Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Franich. Hi, Darren. Kristen, if it's possible to be joyfully exhausted, that's kind of how I feel right now as we finish our look back at the best television of the 2010s. It was a great decade. It was a happy, good decade. I'm happy that it's going to be over soon. Oh, me too. <laughs> I'm a lot of good TV, and we've been talking a lot about a lot of good TV. Uh, and I'm tired, but yes, yes. it's yes. a good tired. It's a good it's, tired. It's a good kind of tired. Uh, today we, we're concluding by looking at the best dramas of the 20 teens. Uh, and I'll just jump in here, Kristen, because I want to talk about, we, we have not been ranking these shows as we've discussed them here on the podcast. If mm-hmm. people do want to see some rankings, uh, our best of the decade list conversation has uh, been up on EW.com. Go check that out. And so I'll just start with the drama that I consider to be the best television show of the 20 teens, even though it did debut and have some pretty good seasons in the previous decade. Mad Men originally aired on AMC, created by Matthew Weiner. Broad strokes, it is the story of an ad agency uh, and the people who work there and the people they love and the people they ultimately divorce uh, as they move through the 1960s. And Kristen, uh, Mad Men seasons four through seven are the seasons that are a part of our 20 teens rubric. And the reason why, uh, even with only the second half of the show accessible to us here, um, the reason why it's my favorite show of the decade, and to me, the emblematic drama of the decade, is that... um, I kind of think that a skill set that's been a little bit lost as we've fallen so far down the rabbit hole of limited series and these high concept shows and these great first seasons that ultimately don't lead to anything good afterwards is that television, it's kind of all about, you know, the ability to keep on growing and evolving and taking your characters in unexpected directions. And for me, season four of Mad Men is kind of the beginning of a whole new act for the show where you have Don Draper and Peggy Olsen and all these incredible characters literally in totally new surroundings and uh, I I believe it was at this point of the show where they stopped shooting on film and started shooting digitally so it's even a whole new kind of look for the show they move into the more colorful period of the 60s and you know for me this is a show that I rewatch all of the time I think episode to episode uh, the the writing level the dialogue the performances are all so great Uh, you know there's a reason why Elizabeth Moss kind of became a true all-star actor of the decade Mm -hmm. and I 
think that her star turn just runs alongside of such a great ensemble. Um, and more than anything else, when I think about why I love Mad Men, I always remember uh, once upon a time I was a young reporter who got to interview uh, the, the kind of video game uh, super producer Dan Hauser. This is a guy who worked on the Grand Theft Auto series, Red Dead Redemption, a lot of things that uh, you're going to want your son to probably not play uh, <laughs> very, very soon. Um, but a, a, a very interesting uh, creator in one field. And I asked him about TV shows he was watching at the time, and he said he loved Mad Men. And what he told me was, uh, quote, I work in an office, and it made it seem like it was exciting. They took something, <laughs> they took something that was nominally very boring, office life, and found a way of depicting it that's horrific, but incredibly engaging. And I, I've always thought that kind of gets to the core of yes. why I love the show, because, you know, we've, you know we're going to talk about some dramas coming up that are incredibly dramatic, and this was kind of a time period when drama could do these intense, you know, characters dying, huge twists, ultra-violent things that TV drama didn't necessarily do a lot of before outside of your kind of Sopranos uh, and, and The Wire, you know, premium cable zone. Um, and for me, Mad Men had all that drama, but what you were investing in was like, oh boy, you know, are they going to get this account? Like, are yes. they gonna, you know, I just, I think that's an incredible magic act that the show pulled off. I totally agree. And it's on my list as well. It's not my number one, but it's, uh, it's up there. And, you know, as somebody who's been working since, you know, I was 23 years old working in an office uh, yeah. with creative people, I can tell you that one of the things that Mad Men got very right is that uh, everyone has a story a personal story and personal baggage and they bring it to work whether you know it or not and yeah. like Don Draper is such a good example of that you know he's it's night it starts in 1960 he's a straight white dashing upper class businessman and he's a guy who had it all on the outside but on the inside you know he had nothing you know he had eradicated his terrible childhood he eventually drives his wife and children away uh, he doesn't even have confidence in who he is everybody else sees him as this brilliant pitch man and as we see in the pivotal sort of hershey bar <laughs> pitch oh, oh God. God, i can't even talk about it without like <laughs> it's so incredible like it's so great that that you know that's an, such a good example of what the show does he's pitching hershey bar you know the hershey account to the executives and that's when he has essentially his biggest emotional breakdown yeah, because yeah. it has such an incredible uh sort of link to his own tragic childhood and like so not only was the show beautiful to look at and so much fun and so well performed and you know not great bob so many good so many good <laughs> memes came out of it but it was also this incredibly moving uh and and uh poignant and really heart-rending uh look at people's personal struggles Absolutely right, Kristen. It's funny, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the incredible Hershey's pitch, Ugh. which comes at the end of, that's at the end of season six, which of all the, the, the four seasons or four and a half seasons that are kind of counting for the best of the decade, season six was the one that when it first aired, I kind of would have said, oh, this is, this is about the biggest step back the show has taken. Season six is really chaotic. It's, the, it's when, you know, Mad Men is now set in 1968, which of course is probably the most famously chaotic year on record before some recent years. Um, and what's remarkable to me is that that season has kind of lived and breathed since it aired in such an interesting way. And I think it's because of what you're describing, that, that the emotional build to that Hershey's speech is kind of incredible. Yes. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, the reason why I think Mad Men is just, you know, kind of the 
defining document of our era is that, you know, even the way it approaches stuff like that, the, the idea that, you know, we kind of get the most emotional over a Hershey's bar. Yes. And, 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 you know, I, I just I think it, it captures something so specific about modern life and does it in a way that is constantly funny and constantly really sorrowful. Um, you know, again, we we could fall down so many rabbit holes just praising, <laughs> praising John Hamm's performance. Uh. I mean, John Hamm, who, you know, the joke of the show was always that he looked like such a, you know, mid-century rock of a man. And so as the later seasons just kept on breaking him down, you know, season four is when you really start to see like oh like he's not a cool guy who can drink and it never affects him like he's a drunk yeah he's, he's a he's, he's a, not he's, even a functioning alcoholic he, he's a he's, non-functioning he's a bad drunk who is sometimes just like you know <laughs> passing out in front of his door because he forgot his keys and you know i mean th there's so much <sighs> to go into with how um you know a character like joan as played by the great christina hendrix um you know she somehow feels more modern every passing day. yes this, this she woman, wants to burn this place she, to the ground to, to the ground and, 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 you know, the, she, the way she's navigating the gender politics of her time, which so clearly fade into the, 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 the gender politics of our time, I just think it's it's so remarkable. And even, as you kind of mentioned, the kind of the fact that you could memify a show about people in suits in an office, um, you know, it's just it's, it's, it's such a singular experience in, 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 in television, I, I think. Yes. Um, and you can but, watch it on Netflix uh, now if you haven't seen it or you can just watch it again. <laughs> And, and and it's sad that Matthew Weiner has not gone on to do any other TV shows yet, but maybe someday. Uh. Maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> It's sad that it's sad that he never got billions of dollars to explore something like you know what, what happened to the Russian royal family. But yeah, that doesn't you know, you know maybe that, 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 that never had to happen. You know? Dare to dream, he'll get to do something else. <laughs> All right, so our next show that you and I both have on our best of the decade list is The Good Fight, uh, which you know you and I have talked a lot about on this uh, podcast, and we will continue to beat the drum for this show, I think, until our dying day. Uh, <laughs> the Good Fight premiered in 2017. It was sold as a spinoff to CBS's savvy, long-running legal drama, The Good Wife. But it came at a time when CBS, along with every other major media conglomerate, was simultaneously trying to fend off extinction by launching their own streaming service. So CBS All Access has been the good fight's blessing and its curse. Uh, freed from the confines of broadcast TV standards, creators Robert and Michelle King have spiked their spinoff with narrative psychedelics. Characters hallucinate, they deliver soliloquies to the camera, they suck on fentanyl lollipops. <laughs> Episodes are interrupted by animated musical tutorials about troll farms and Roy Cohn and non-disclosure agreements. On the downside, though, is anyone watching? CPS All Access doesn't really reveal their numbers, but it's a fact that The Good Fight certainly does not have the buzz or the Emmy love that its network sibling received. And it's a damn shame, Darren. It is a shame, Kristen. Um, but one thing that I love so much about The Good Fight and kind of its 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 place in how we think about television now is that, you know, as you kind of said, it's, it exists in this totally strange way that could have never happened before, yes. where, you know, it it is a, it, to my eyes, incredibly glossy 
and assemblage of all-star talent kind of a show that nevertheless exists on a platform that, you know, wasn't really around a few years ago and for a lot of people may as well still not exist. And, you know, all of that is kind of frustrating as someone who wants everybody to at least give a chance the things that I enjoy. Uh, but the flip side of that is, boy, when you find someone who likes the good fight, yes. you're, you're just, you are officially inside of that person's soul, you know? Because um, it's so, as you said, it's such a specific and kind of wonderful accomplishment. I think the fact that uh, Michelle and Robert King um, are just so good at the kind of crisp storytelling that I, I, I hesitate to call old-fashioned because, you know, there's always going to be a place for that kind of, you know, whip-smart, you know, every episode is kind of a meal unto itself yeah. kind of storytelling that television used to be so good at. But the way that The Good Fight kind of allows them to keep that up, to keep doing these really, really interesting, you know, Case of the Week comes in yes. and happens to involve all these fascinating things that are in our world now. And yet also all along, just the slipperiness and the way in which um, by the end of season three, you kind of had all these characters who, again, are like awesome, funny, smart, well-dressed lawyers. You kind of had them all like staring at Armageddon and, yeah. and taking and taking LSD to sort of, you know, dull themselves to the pain of that. I just think that's so astonishing. And of course, you know, just anything that gives us a venue for Christine Baranski uh, to give, give incredible speeches while an American flag is literally waving behind her is... Is uh, pretty remarkable. It's, I, she's a queen, and she's a queen. And yeah. yes, I mean that's that's exactly it. This show not only you know does really strange and funny and weird and experimental things, but it's also like just a top-notch, satisfying legal procedural. You Absolutely. know, and that is like I think that's what gets lost, and so like and it makes it harder to sell because you know yes, it's definitely like there are a lot of politics in this show, but it also you know just delivers what you want if you loved you know, the smart uh, sort of legal drama of The Good Wife, it, it delivers that every week. And the clothes are gorgeous and the yeah. actors are amazing. And I don't know, it's just, it's a show that I will proselytize about until till my well, dying day. And, and, and Kristen, I hate to pull out a word that I barely understand and, and that was only really a thing for like two seconds this decade, but <laughs> the, the, the word normcore yes. kind of comes to mind when I think about The Good Fight because, you know, it seems conventional to do a show about lawyers who are doing cases each week. And, you know, it is not necessarily something where it is a radically stylized right. version of itself, at least not initially. By by season three, it is cuckoo bananas, and I love that. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, we're, we're kind of at a time where, like, in a way that I still have trouble really describing, you know... In some ways, the most mainstream show in America was The Walking Dead this decade, you know, and 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 that was a show that I liked a little bit of in the early years, and it's still on, and there's going to be ten more versions of it probably. But like, you know, at a time when that is sort of super mainstream, doing something in the spirit of of a Perry Mason or The Practice or yeah. the Sam Waterston side of Law and Order, um, to me, it becomes a little bit more radical, and certainly it's radical the way that the Kings do it when you just feel really strongly that you know the the center of this once pretty secure universe that these characters on, on the Good Fight live in has totally fallen away. Um, you know, I, I just think that's. 
such a remarkable uh, accomplishment that they've done and will continue to do. The Good Fight uh, will return next year to CBS All Access, which is where everybody should watch it. It's definitely worth your time. Uh, I know it's one more uh, service to subscribe to, um, but uh, it's worth it just for that. Uh, Kristen, we're going to stay in the legal arena yes. uh, for the next show that I want to talk about um, because uh, the people, the OJ Simpson, uh, uh, the first installment of the anthology American crime story ranks very high for me. And really for me is the best mini series of the decade or limited series or event series or whatever you want to call it as you're conducting <laughs> your, your uh, as, as networks are conducting cate- uh, category fraud at the next uh, Emmys. Um, mm-hmm. This is the show that returned to the OJ Simpson trial and kind of witnessed the cultural devastation of the media hurricane that followed uh, the the genuinely tragic uh, deaths in Brentwood uh, on that night that launched it all. Um, and, uh, you know, full credit to super producer Ryan Murphy. This certainly exemplifies um, just everything that his style of television can be. Um, and I also do want to call out uh, the, the showrunners Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who before People v. OJ were kind of best known for twisted and jangled biopics that did interesting <laughs> things to reality itself, like Edward or Man on the Moon. Um, it's just remarkable how they bring that same sensibility to this show in a way that became justifiably enthralling to watch. Um, you know, the way that uh, Sarah Paulson's Marsha Clark mm-hmm. or uh, Sterling K. Brown's uh, uh, Christopher Darden, these these characters who, for someone, you know, for someone our age who kind of remembers the OJ trial, these are people who you kind of thought you knew and who had kind of lived on as, if they lived on as at all, as kind of eternal punchlines. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, the way in which this show, while being incredibly funny and incredibly sharp about you know all manner of things to do with celebrity and ongoing racial discord in America, um, it also just brought so much more humanity to everyone. Uh, even in some respects, Cuba Gooding Jr. as O.J. Simpson was probably like at times like the ninth most interesting character on screen. Um, but even uh, you know he, I think, kind of got inside of this. Uh, truly horrific person who right. you know has has continued to live on in in continuously horrible ways this decade um, in a way that just was constantly surprising. Uh, you know, Kristen, this was the decade of the limited series, and you know, more often than not, I, I actually think that th- there was a lot uh, th- there was more bad than good, but the good ones could really shine. And this was the one where episode to episode, it just felt as if we were getting so deep into this hugely famous story that, yeah. that it turned out we didn't know anything about or, or, or at least what we thought we knew was so opposite the kind of complex truth of it so exactly. th- that's why um, so th- that's why people the OJ uh, is really high up there for me yes and I you know I second that and I'm just going to expand it to say you know that I'm calling American crime story overall which so far has just had two seasons a third one's coming up this fall and one of the best dramas of the decade uh, you know like you said with especially with Marsha Clark you know the episode where she she changes her hair and there's just this devastating moment where Robert Shapiro played by John Travolta, you know, says, you know, love your hair. And it's just, it's so, you would think it's so silly, but it, it is so important to the, it's so important to sort of the re-examination of that person, Marsha Clark, this woman who was a divorced working mom. And that was, gave her, 
that put all the targets on her back to use reality TV parlance uh, at that time. You know, she, you know, her hair was frizzy and, uh, you know, uh, everyone was scrutinizing how she looked and, you know, she's divorced and she's working too hard and, you know, is she there for her kids? And all these things that in hindsight now, when we look at it, you know, of course, it's absurd to, you know, she was dealing with, those are challenges, not things to ridicule. And, yeah. and yet, you know, the way that Murphy was able to and his team were able to re-examine, you know, who this woman was in a way and, 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 not rehab because it's not like her image it's sort of like rehab our view of her yeah. of her was incredible and with the you know the second season the assassination of Gianni Versace that you know the team did the exact same thing in that you know this was a sensational murder and Andrew Cunanan shot Gianni Versace the fashion designer in front of his you know palatial Miami estate and that was the headline but what we the story that we forgot or that most of us forgot was that, you know, Versace was the fifth victim. And there were four more men who were killed uh, before. Uh, and most of them were gay men, Jeffrey Trail, David Madsen, especially. Uh, Jeffrey T Trail was a former Marine, a gay former Marine. And David Madsen was a young gay man who uh, was, you know, dealing with coming out to his family. And like this, the show by telling the story backwards, you know, starting with uh, Versace's murder and then uh, going backwards to show each uh, previous uh, encounter and, and Andrew Cunanan's own sort of issues with being gay and dealing with that, you know, it really just uh, focused the story on what it really should have been about at the time, which was, you know, young gay men being killed and, yeah. and, and, and my, you know, especially in Miami, like uh, the, the cops sort of being reluctant to go down that road in terms of like, and, and to take it as seriously as they should have. Whereas, you know, it's today uh, it would have been, it would have been viewed in a much more uh, urgent light, you know, yeah. and yeah, it's so I'm really looking forward to, you know, this fall, it's going to be impeachment, American oh, crime man. story. What I, are we going to, what's it going to tell us about Monica Lewinsky that, you know, we thought we knew, but we don't, uh, you know, and, and Kristen Boyd, just uh, even in this day and age, when obviously, you know, it, it, our fascinations and our focus is often so splintered, uh, I, I, I feel the rumbling of the sort of attention quake that will come Ugh. for the impeachment series, and I'm just so fascinated. But uh, you know, um, I, I, Kristen, it's so interesting. Kind of, you have been someone who I think has spoken, written so eloquently before about uh, the Gianni Versace season, and for me, that's actually one that I want to revisit because the three episodes that are kind of right in the middle that focus on uh, Lee Miglin and uh, uh, David Madsen and Jeff Trail, those episodes for me are pretty standout. Uh, incredible. Incredible slices of life for those people in that time. The, the rest of the season, I, I struggled with a little bit just because um, it, it, it was a little bit more a, a, a miniseries where I felt that there were clear standout episodes in yeah. between episodes that seemed like padding. But... Um, what I will say is the cumulative effect of Gianni Versace uh, of, of that season and the final episode, there's something about it that feels 
even more personal for Ryan Murphy himself yeah. um, than, you know, almost anything else that he's kind of, you know, put his name on. And there's a lot of TV of his that we've liked this decade and a lot of TV that we struggled with um, and, or outright just not like. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, the kind of houseboat setting of that finale is something I've never gotten out of my uh. head. Just just the sheer amount of, you know, style and budget that went into telling this incredibly twisted and sorrowful true life psychodrama um, and what it means. I, I just think that, you know, Ryan Murphy is definitely a no guts, no glory kind of a, yeah. uh, kind of a producer. And, you know, that season is really just to me a monument to, you know, what, what he can accomplish. Um, you know, it, even, even if there's, uh, there are other times that you struggle with it. There's times yeah. where it's just like, yeah, there's there's nobody else who could have done something like this. Yeah, he 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 fails big and he wins big. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. I feel like with this, you know, this series in particular, uh, he's he's really uh, he's he's really just done some extraordinary work. Uh, I think in part because the facts, <laughs> you yes. know, are there yes. to rein in, you know, any of her, his more outlandish tendencies. Uh, yeah. You know, but uh, that's not to say that we we don't love, uh, you know, some seasons of horror story yeah. and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, but. yeah. As far as, like, truly outlandish Ryan Murphy goes, American Horror Story Asylum will always stand yes. supreme for me. Uh, but uh, everyone do, if you have not, check out or uh, join me in rewatching uh, American Crime Story. It's uh, Both seasons are currently streaming on Netflix. Kristen, this concludes the part of the show where you and I uh, uh, agree <laughs> on everything <laughs> on, on, on three shows. Uh, but, uh, you know, we do have some other TV shows that we want to talk about that are uh, both kind of in our respective uh, top TV dramas of the decade. And uh, I'm going to jump in here yes. with a show that, um, you know, was incredibly important for me uh, in so many ways while it was airing and in rewatching it and consistently thinking about it over the last couple of years. I've come to really see that um, in a way that I worried was not possible as I was getting older, it really kind of remapped my uh, my expectations for entertainment and for television and, and kind of gave me kind of e e a sense of even new horizons of what television could do. I'm talking, of course, uh, about Twin Peaks, The Return, mm. the revival of the uh, mystery, supernatural, semi-religious murder soap opera, which, of course, was a huge phenomenon back in the early 90s and uh, from some perspective kind of flamed out quickly, although I will uh, gladly defend the spinoff movie. <laughs> Uh, the creators David Lynch and Mark Frost returned to write all 18 parts of the new series. Lynch directed all 18 parts. How can I describe the plot of Twin Peaks The Return in one sentence or less? Well, uh, it's still called Twin Peaks. And it's not entirely set in Twin Peaks. Uh, the, Kyle MacLachlan returns to play various versions of Agent Dale Cooper. Uh, there is still this deep abiding sense that there is something wrong and it needs to be figured out. Uh, and the figuring out of all of that uh, takes a very long and, and rather diffuse route. Uh, there are incredible check-ins with our beloved original Twin Peaks characters, but there's mm. also all kinds of new characters. And uh, Kyle MacLachlan, quite unexpectedly, spends a lot of the season playing someone named Dougie, who's uh, a hello. human sponge. <laughs> <laughs> hello! <laughs> Who is a human sponge uh, living through some interesting uh, domestic personal problems in Las Vegas. And Kristen, um, you know, 
Uh, I've talked uh, for little for literal hours about Twin Peaks elsewhere with our old pal <laughs> Jeff Jensen. Um, but the only update that I will say is that on kind of rewatching it the most recent time, it just struck me that. Um, you know, Twin Peaks, the first uh, in its first incarnation, it was, I think, kind of a seminal moment for pushing forward what television could do. And, and I think was generally considered to be, you know, this is kind of showing a, a new potential kind of darkness for television. That was a show that literally started with the death of Cheryl Lee's Laura Palmer. And, you know, by the end of its second season, its, it's second season finale is one of the bleakest things that's ever aired on network television. And as totally bleak as the new season could be and episode eight uh, the kind of standout one that everyone talks about is very much the sort of horrific mythic origin story of the entire post-atomic age um, what I think constantly strikes me on rewatching is the lightness and, and humanity um, and really hard-won sentimentality that uh, David Lynch and, and Mark Frost brought to this material um, you know I, I know a lot of people were and continue to be baffled by the Dougie stuff. Um, but to me, you know, I, I find more and more, as much as I love the stuff in Twin Peaks, as much as I love the stuff that's more focused on the Great Mysteries and the Black Lodge and the White Lodge, um, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, Dougie and Janie E, played by Naomi Watts and mm. their son, Sonny Jim, just kind of like hanging out in this kind of gorgeous, normal, banal, ridiculous Las Vegas suburban lifestyle that really kind of stick out to me. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, we're obviously so overstuffed with reboots and revivals and sequels, and this is not even the last re uh, reboot that I'll be talking about uh, in, in, in this in this episode. Um, but I just think that in a decade when so often that kind of reheated intellectual property tended to be, you know, we're going to do it darker and more yeah. realistic and all this. you know, Or we're going to do it exactly the same when we should evolve it. Right, right. right. <laughs> You know, this is so, you know, to return to something that was so distinctive, to return to Twin Peaks, which was so, it was so distinctive that there was a time a couple years ago and it seemed like every show felt like the original Twin Peaks yeah. when you had Riverdale and you had American Gods and all these shows that were very much, you know, paying homage to the original. Um, you know, there's such a lightness here that I think is even more remarkable given, you know, that Lynch is very much a filmmaker in, in, in his, you know, later stages now. And I, I, I think about that a lot. Um, you know, there's... There's, there's more to uh, th there's more to life than the sort of dark grim yeah. reheating of these stories, uh, and so that th that's why I, I, that's why I think it really kind of stands out for me. I just you know I I watched the original, but I also uh, you know did sort of drop off. I I think I saw one of the movies. How many movies were there? I don't know, but like uh, well, there was there was well there was one movie, but it, it kind of feels like three movies. Yes, and I was like <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I was excited for this, and you know honestly from the the beginning of this, uh, the first episode where I, you know, literally did not know what was happening at yeah. all. There's a box yeah. and there are people and then they get eaten and what, <laughs> you know, but I, I was, I, I mean, the, even just the use of silence in that first episode is incredible. And yeah. it was just, it felt, uh, it felt new. And, and, but also just in, you know, as it goes on, it feels, you know, I felt very much like this was a, a, a story 
from a creator who had more to say, you yeah. know, and you don't necessarily yeah. always feel that way with yeah. these revivals. And I, I loved, you know, even though so much of it, like no idea what was happening. <laughs> you know, I did love J Dougie. Doesn't he get like, doesn't he go through the, the electrical socket? Like, Oh yeah. There's, yeah well, it's, well, 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 Kristen, that's when he gets, that's when he gets reborn into yes. this, uh, into, into the modern age. And when he gets kind of smokeified. It's through smokeified through, and, and the, you know, I love, there's so much weirdness that happened, but I, I also just love, and we've talked a little bit about this, like that, you know, even though there are plenty of questions not answered, plenty of things, uh, plenty of things that made no sense. And, you know, David Lynch was definitely like, I'm not going to explain them to you. And that's your, <laughs> your problem. I loved that Cooper remained so dedicated to his one mission, which was, you know, it, it, he wanted to save Laura Palmer, you know, even though she had been killed. And like yeah. he wanted to he wanted to find justice for her. He wanted to he wanted to help her and save her. And, you know, it doesn't end well for him as far yeah. as we can tell. But like I loved that there was this through line for him. Yeah. And, you know, even with all the doppelganger and the and Dougie and just all the other weirdness that was happening, that felt very, you know, uh, as a as a fan of the original and just, you know, somebody who loves Kyle MacLachlan, I really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, it, totally. It, the ending is is so haunting, but feels feels appropriate. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think that, um, I mean, again, McLaughlin is just, he's so It's good. ridiculous how good he and, is. And, and it's even like, you know, each time I watch it, there's like a different character of his who I appreciate yes. more. You know, I, I just think that, um, you know, the way that Lynch works with actors is so particular where, you know, they're rarely called upon to do really over-the-top things, um, but, but they're just so perfect at mm -hmm. kind of encapsulating uh, you know, one thing that I think is especially interesting to rewatch uh, Twin Peaks The Return now is that, you know, even while it was airing, kind of remarkably enough, some of the performers had already passed on. Um, and, 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 you know, we've lost even more of them since then. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Robert Forster, Harry Dean Stanton, Peggy Lipton. And, you know, I, I think that um, there's something in the kind of way in which Lynch casts all these actors, you know, s some of whom had had, you know, incredible star turns earlier in the, earlier in their career. Um, so often they're kind of just called upon to play regular people, but mm -hmm. but so something about that regularity is really marvelous. Um, you know, uh, I, I just think that, like, when I think about strength, for instance, you know, we live in a time where characters and dramas tend to be super strong and they kill lots of people and everything. I just I kind of think about Peggy Lipton in uh. the Double R Diner. You know, there's something about um, the well, the, the the incredible specificity and, and gentleness of Twin Peaks: The Return. Oh, I know, and that me. I mean that was part of the obviously the appeal of the original, just this beautifully quaint and sort of retro setting, uh, where you could really feel like, oh, this 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 place is ideal, but yeah. then the undercurrent is it's actually, you know. A hellscape. <laughs> yes, 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 and and yet, and yet, even and yet, within that hellscape, there are still these moments of grace. I know. Um, so, like, I still want to go to the lodge. You yeah, know? I, I, I that, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and and you know, even I think there's something so wonderfully. 
um, you know, unusual about the fact that on top of everything else, this also just became kind of a variety show where each week there was a new band playing. Like, I just, I, I think that there's, <laughs> so there's, so, there's so many delights in Twin Peaks The Return. I do hope that people will check it out. Um, it's available on, uh, on, on Showtime services. Uh, and there is, of course, the new Blu-ray coming out, which I will uh, be purchasing for myself this holiday season <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a Christmas present Happy to Happy holidays me. to you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so my next series uh actually basically kind of started as a comedy um but then eventually realized uh it had been having a bit of a an identity crisis and reclassified itself for emmy reasons but also i think for the best uh orange is the new black this show from creator genji cohen premiered in 2013 and you know sort of pulled us in with this very novel twist on the traditional fish out of water trope you know privileged upper middle class white lady piper chapman played by taylor Schilling, is sent to prison and must adjust to a world where she is the minority um but, you know, Piper was the Trojan horse. And over the next uh, several seasons, Orange is the New Black sort of transformed this setting, Litchfield Pen Penitentiary, into a microcosm of society's most underrepresented voices. Black and brown women, queer and trans women, rape survivors, drug addicts, mentally ill, and more. And, you know, yes, Orange is the New Black could be uneven. And yes, sometimes it leaned too heavily on sitcom-y hijinks, you know, in terms of it was a dramedy, but it did have, you know, some sort of, you know, moments. Uh, that said, when you think about the sprawling cast and the characters and how indelible they were, I mean, these are characters that we immediately cared about and continued to care about over you know, multiple, multiple seasons. And they were characters that, you know, weren't, uh, hadn't been represented on TV before, you know, and uh, whether it was, you know, transgender Sophia, whether it was uh, Suzanne, you know, quote unquote, crazy eyes, which was just really yes, a woman dealing with mental illness, um, you know, uh, Nikki as, uh, you know, this young white drug addict who kind of whose life had been derailed by drugs. These were, you know, they, they became people to us, uh, relatable people. They were never, they were never caricatures. And, you know, I just think in terms of what, uh, you know, the show did overall from both on, on set, you know, behind the camera and on screen showing uh, women uh, oh, such a wide spectrum of women uh, that we hadn't seen before. And for really, you know, for seven seasons of, you know, generally really, really strong, uh, interesting storytelling, I think I think it deserves a spot. I think also be, it also sometimes gets a little bit sidelined because people think, you know, because it was so hot, you know, and people loved it so much in the beginning and it was, and then the, the backlash started. And I, I don't know that some people I think eventually just never came back to it, but I do, if you stuck with it, it was a really strong uh, show with really great performances for a long time. And that's tough to do, especially when you're dealing with subject matter like this. So um, it's it's one that I, I'm almost like sort of defiantly putting it on my list, like, mm -hmm. damn it, people, you know, don't, you know, don't write this show off. It still did. Like, I almost put Modern yeah. Family on my list for the same reason in that, like, this, this is a show that was huge. And then people just started taking it for granted, when in fact, its influence on, uh, 
comedy was so uh, mm. important on modern day sitcomedy. And I think Orange is the New Black fits in that same, you know, this is a show that people take for granted when, in fact, it did a lot of things uh, in the drama and just, you know, scripted television space first. Yeah. You know, Kristen, I'm so glad that uh, you had this show on your list. I, I was always a, a, a very casual uh, Orange viewer, but um, one of the things I think is so interesting, especially about how you're describing it, is that um, it gets at something that I, I personally really struggled with and don't think I figured out when I was kind of making my list of the best shows of the decade, which is that um, there are some shows where for for for, for an amount of time, you know, maybe two or three seasons, I would have said, well, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. And then, you know, one way or another, they, they took a, they took a deep turn or, you know, they just went, went on way too long. And, you know, at times when a show does that, it can really affect or color how you look back at the earlier seasons. Like for me, basically what I'm talking around here is that Girls um, was a show that I, I thought really seriously about putting on my top 15. And it kind of just honestly kept coming down to like, you know, can can I put a show that had like the terrible Zachary Quinto character and the awful, you know, the, the awful like MFA subplot and all this stuff that just completely did not work next to all these shows that to me were ultimately much more kind of coherent, complete, um, you know, transformative experiences. But, um, you know, in, in a similar way to Orange is the New Black, um, the way that it kind of expanded what could be done and what could be expected of television was something that really kind of jumps out to me. But but I will say, Kristen, you, you kind of, I believe you were, you kind of felt that in the end, um, after some some uh, back and forth seasons, that the show did kind of arrive at something pretty, pretty special in its final season, right? Yeah, I mean, the final season is, uh, you know, they, every season, you know, was sort of remarkably either prescient or timely in a way that, you know, is difficult, especially when you're shooting something, you know, uh, eight or 10 months in advance, you know, and the final season took on immigration and ICE and detention camps and, 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 you know, introduced new characters, which is, you know, it's already a huge cast. And, uh, you know, so that's risky. But in fact, it, you know, it worked in existing characters that we really cared about into these, this, you know, sort of immigration storyline and had some really devastating outcomes. Um, but also, you know, there were, you know, I don't want to say happy endings, but there were endings that felt uh, hopeful for characters that we love. There were, you know, at one point, Red says to Lorna, uh, you know, life is just about, you know, showing up for people. And I think that's such a beautiful message, especially for a show that like, as I said, I think in, you know, my review of the final season, like this is a show that has shown up for for women and for female characters that really had kind of been ignored before and it, done it for seven seasons. And I think it really, it. I felt that the ending was very satisfying and, you know, it's hard to do. It's hard to, uh, season series finales are incredibly hard to do. And I think this one did a really great job. The final season I really enjoyed. So yeah, definitely some ups and downs, but I, I think, yeah, it, it is an internal debate. Like does the fact that it had some really stupid storylines and some, you know, I hated that panty 
warehouse storyline. <laughs> don't even ask me. Like, but does that does that rule it out? I don't think yeah. it does. I don't think it does. I, I, I suspect too that that's a show that um, you know. I I wonder sometimes, Kristen, if any show from the past will ever kind of have a second life now because we do live in a time where there's just constant newness. Um, but you know, yes. but, but but then I remember that in the last few years, it does seem like a new generation has discovered you know all kinds of shows. Uh, you know, your the Friends fandom is something that continues to baffle but also fascinate me because you know it's like okay like there is still room for classic television even in a time when mm-hmm. there's so much newness and I, I do wonder sometimes if this show um, and uh, uh, Genji Cohen uh, also in the midst of Orange is the New Black uh, she was the executive producer of Glow which is a show that I really enjoy that to me they both feel as much as Orange was, was more as you said uh, r- ripping from the headlines there is this kind of timeless quality to its setting and everything and I, I suspect it'll kind of keep on being rediscovered um, well into the next decade. Uh, it's it's still there on Netflix, everybody. Go check that out. Um, Kristen, uh, it seems only appropriate that uh, we conclude my side of this look at the best dramas of the decade uh, with a lovely, kind of romantic, and really thought-provoking show about people who occasionally eat each other. Uh, I'm talking, <laughs> of course, about Hannibal, which originally aired on NBC. This is a reboot-slash-reconsideration-slash-ultimate nightmare version of the Hannibal Lecter story, <laughs> uh, as originally created in the novels of Thomas Harris, then, of course, made famous by The Silence of the Lambs uh, and its follow-up movie starring Anthony Hopkins. Um, Hannibal, which came from the demented and, and incredibly artistically daring mind of Brian Fuller, uh, uh, began as essentially like a extremely far-flung riff on the sort of vogue for brainiac investigators. Um, you know, w- watching early episodes of season one, you- you'd be forgiven to think that you were just watching exceptionally grotesque episodes of The Mentalist. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen at plays Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who uh, this is before his incarceration uh, when we meet him. He's merely a super fancily dressed smart guy who uh, may or may not, spoiler alert, is killing people and serving them up as food. Um, and the, the, the majority of this three-season wonder ultimately focused around this incredible ongoing dance between Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham, played by Hugh Dancy. Uh, uh, Will Graham is an FBI profiler who, again, it's sort of another procedural type that we saw a lot of, this person who can really get inside of the heads of bad guys. Um, and in Hannibal, that basically meant that he was a burnt ember of a man when we first met him. And the ways in which, you know, initially he and Hannibal are kind of investigating serial killers. And, you know, I- I'm someone who really struggles with serial killer uh, narratives in general, Kristen, we talked a lot about Criminal Minds, which is a show that I think is a you know is, is an onslaught against hum- against humanity. Um, but the way in which Fuller kind of owned and pushed to an extreme the idea of serial killers as these sort of like aesthetic, uh, you know, psychodramatic artists. You know, people were killed in the craziest and most elaborate ways possible. So as violent as it was, it it never felt to me like it was merely fetishistic. There was this incredible sense of creativity to it. Um, And where the show went from there, from this kind of incredible stealth missile launch as a really good procedural, was just just so astonishing. I mean, by season three, um, 
you know, there's a there's an extended series of of uh, of episodes where everyone goes to Europe for a while, uh, which is just absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, there you know there are just some really incredible uh, standout people on the supporting cast, like Lawrence Fishburne and Gillian Anderson arrives uh, uh, to just her. kind of really dominate her corner of the show for a while. Um, but but more than anything, there was just something so absurdly delicious about this series, and I, I just I think it's such an example of how um, you know to kind of beat a drum that I've been beating for a while you can take something that seems like an old story you know the, the story of Hannibal Lecter this idea of cop and criminal being two sides of the same coin and in, a, in the hands of someone like Brian Fuller just push it to such a kind of wonderful fascinating unique and eccentric extreme um, you know I, I think that Mads Mikkelsen deserves all kinds of praise for bringing new life to a character who yeah. you, know, you thought was kind of done definitively like, was, was this a show that you watched in, uh, uh, while it was on TV, Kristen? You know, I did watch it a couple times, but, you know, uh, no pun intended, I just didn't have the stomach for it. Like <laughs> Some I, pun intended. I, I a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was well done. I just, I couldn't do it, you know, yeah, and yeah. Um, I, it was just too much for me, but... Um, it was one that you know, maybe if I ever, I don't know, maybe I'll have a stiff drink and try again. But it just, <laughs> you know, I love the fact that it took this universe that existed and, you know, didn't completely reboot it, but did something new with it, which is yeah. really hard. And yeah. uh, and I know that, you know, it's, it's something that has this really intense cult following because, you know, people sort of like you said about the good, uh, the good fight. If you find somebody who loved Hannibal, like you guys are soulmates, you know, yeah. and because it really is, you know, it was an intense uh, experience for everybody who, who really loved it. And um, it's a show that I can, that I will safely appreciate from afar. I, I yeah. And I, I think that's fair. And I will just also shout out too that um, it's kind of another example of how when you least expected it this decade, network television. Yes. Could have really come up with something so entrancing, and one of the things I think was especially um, fascinating uh, about its role on NBC is that you know as as violent as the show is, it still couldn't quite do the sort of things that you can just easily get away with on streaming services right. or, pre or, or, or on premium cable. So there was this kind of fascinating austerity to it that kind of had to supplement, um, you know, when you saw people eating people, it was kind of done <laughs> in this incredibly over-the-top gourmand, almost kind of, you know, food porn on acid style. And I just think that, you know, it's another... I, I, it's another example of how, um, you know, as much as there was this, this expansion of options across all forms of media, uh, you know, network television was still kind of a place where some pretty remarkable uh, yeah. action could happen. So I, I do hope that everybody uh, does give it a second look. It is certainly one of the more unusual shows to air in this decade, and uh, it is uh, currently available to stream on Amazon Prime. Maybe, oh, okay. a season, maybe season four someday. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? Who knows? And maybe when Peacock... Uh, launches you'll be able to watch the whole thing uh, if you're not a subscriber to amazon prime but uh so my final show and my uh my pick for best show of the decade is one that like i gave up on halfway through season one um <laughs> so when hbo premiered the leftovers you know i loved uh tom prada's novel and so i thought okay you know i'll give this a try um it, it's based on the novel in which uh, the world is traumatized by the sudden departure which is a mysterious event that causes 140 million people to disappear from the planet.
planet all at once. And, you know, but the first season of the show, which was created by Damon Lindelof, uh, felt really grim, obviously, but it also felt grim in a way that was just sort of hollow and nihilistic. And I think midway through season one, one of the members of the guilty remnant is stoned to death while tied to a tree. And I was like, nope, I'm out. Casino clap. And so I just stopped watching. And, uh, you know, but plenty of other people kept watching. And, you know, as it started airing season two, I kept hearing the word of mouth praise, you know, like, oh, my God, The Leftovers, are you watching? It's so good. And you know, TV shows based on books can be really dicey because more often than not, the storytelling really suffers once the source material has dried up. But interestingly enough, The Leftovers was like the complete opposite. For me, you know, once Lindelof and his writers left the blueprint of the book behind, something sort of shook loose. And in its final two seasons, it became this sort of gripping and bizarre and profoundly emotional meditation on uh, the many ways to deal with or succumb to grief. And, you know, it was propelled by these really beautiful performances, Justin Thoreau, who doesn't, you know, also doesn't hurt that he's like incredibly good looking and he's shirtless a lot. Um, (laughs) And Carrie Coon, who is just, you know, a revelation. And what I loved about it is it, it took the universe, you know, this was still a world where people had disappeared and people were uh, living with the sudden departure, but it, it felt so much more sort of hopeful in a way in its final two seasons, even as it was incredibly sad. But I just sort of describe it as, you know, there's that corny but true, you know, saying like, you should focus on what you have, not what you want. It showed us why that was true by creating this world where everyone has suffered this unfathomable loss and no one can focus on anything else. And it shows how the characters sort of move through that to get to a point where they realize, like, I'm still here. I'm going to live my life. And I'm so, you know, grateful for the people around me. And, you know, it sounds corny, but like, it's just so, you know, the show has made me feel more than any other show of the decade. Yeah. You know, for me, Kristen, you know, it's similar to my feelings about Twin Peaks, The Return. If you can, if you can come up with something that seems corny, but boy, you just get there in a way that is so earned. Yeah. So, um, so completely rooted in what the, in the struggle of the characters and in this feeling of the world as a place where yes, awful things happen. And so, you know, you have to kind of appreciate the people around you. Um, you know, for me, I'm not sure there's a more emotional final moment of a season than the end of season two when you've gone on this incredibly disparate journey with these characters who at various times just seem like they're all going to be, you know, falling away from each other forever. Um, and, you know, the, the grace note of that final scene is just astonishing. Um, I'm so glad that you mentioned this show, Kristen, because I do think that, you know, just the journey of Damon Lindelof across this decade yes. is so remarkable. Um, you know, he, of course, co-created Lost which ended at the start of this decade and you know there's a lot of things that I like about about that last season Um, but I've often wondered if the sheer bleakness of season one of The Leftovers was kind of his reaction to the the, the extraordinarily um, negative reaction that he experienced to the lost finale you know know, and and I always think that um, you know uh, and the way in which The Leftovers built up from that first season and kind of altered its 
itself, but also kind of found a new heart in season two. Um, I just think it's really kind of wonderful. Um, and boy, Carrie Coon. Uh, her her kind of arrival on the scene um, in that incredible standalone episode of, of, of the first season uh, is really just one of the great star-making turns of the decade. Um, yeah, I uh, you know th- 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 this was not on my list. It was very close to being on there, but I'm so glad that you had it, Kristen. And it is yeah. it's funny to think of it as as you were saying this idea of at a time when I think kind of now more than ever in this decade there were books that were adapted into TV shows, and mm-hmm. there was just a clear drop off in quality. Yes. after the show ran out of book, uh, cough, game of, <laughs> cough cough Game of Thrones, cough cough. Um, but Handmaid's yeah, Tale, it, it, Handmaid's Tale, cough cough. Um, but uh, you know, I, I wonder if it was just that. Strange ability Lindelof has to find the core of something, even if he's doing totally new things with it, which of course is also true of Watchmen. Watchmen, now. exactly. That's another great example of him. You know, he he is true to the universe, but uh, he's doing something new. And uh, that second season finale, like, there's one moment and it just sounds so quiet, but it moved me so much, and I still think about it. You know, Kevin, uh, played by uh, Justin Theroux, Kevin and his friend John uh, have gone through this you know ridiculous i i can't it's so hard to explain they've gone through this totally harrowing thing and they get to their house their their neighbors you know and john is afraid to start crying i know john (laughs) is afraid to go into his house he says what if there's nobody home and kevin just says to him then you come over to my house and like it's so perfect it's like such a beautiful example of what the message of this show is you know that as alone as we feel we're not alone if we just look up you know and look around us and uh yeah it's just the fact that it could go from a show that i like was actively angry about in season one to a show that i just you know am so incredibly moved by it's just you know that's that's tv in the 2010s you know there's some real miracles happening Kristen, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, you're going to be talking to Michelle and Robert King, creators of The Good Fight and a lot of other good shows, who will be talking to us about their favorite shows of the decade. Hi, nice to talk to you, and I know we're here to talk about the best shows of the decade. I just wanted to say uh, I love, I'm loving evil. I can't believe you guys put the baby in the pool. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> You're not sorry. Anyway, um, (laughs) thank you for taking the time to do this. I know you're really busy. So for, you know, as uh, I think was explained to you, we're putting together our uh, best of the decade, a series of episodes about that. And so I wanted to talk to you guys. I know you're big TV fans of, you know, your picks for the best shows of the decade. So I'll let you start with uh, whatever you whatever you guys chose. Uh, well, I would say for me, it would be uh, Breaking Bad and Bob Burgers. Oh, basically in- anything with the alliteration of a B. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me first about Breaking Bad, what, why you love it. Uh, well, I think Vince Gilligan's a genius. Yes. Uh, the writing there is so smart. He gets, uh, I mean, that premise in anybody else's hands would have been so hackneyed. And yet, in his, was so subtle. Of course, Brian Cranston was absolutely brilliant in it. Right. And I thought that they made um, what could have been a negative into positives. I'm sure they weren't working with an enormous budget, so they just had 
scenes with a couple of people in it shot on few locations, and uh, it still made it into an incredibly tense show. Right, right. Um, and Robert, is this one of your picks as well? You know, only because Michelle picked it, I won't go there, even though I do think Breaking Bad, when you list the things that are remembered from the early part of the 21st century, it will probably be one of the few. Um, so, yeah, maybe right. Deadwood in that. But I, those aren't even my picks. I let Michelle have that one. I okay. Kind of, uh, mine are maybe a little more esoteric. I really like Twin Peaks, and I know that might... I just thought it was amazing. So I assume, I'm talking about the new one. Yeah, I'm sorry, the new one. Twin the Peaks, one. The Return, yes, yes. The Return. And then The Americans, because I just think... Uh, I couldn't think of a more difficult premise, and it, it adds so much emotion and danger to a premise. And I agree with Michelle. I'm amazed in this time when people are talking about $15 million episodes that the Americans in Breaking Bad were really done on very tight budgets. Um, and I think both turned smallness into uh, an asset. And so I guess we're looking at it as showrunners to just looking at what amazing work we've done for such... Um, low money. I was going to ask, you know, as as people who make TV, it must definitely influence how you guys watch TV. Like thinking about as you're watching it, you can't just watch it as a viewer. Yeah, you're always aware when you're watching a pilot how nervous everyone is. Um, <laughs> you can feel the unsteadiness. <laughs> you know, you can feel where the ADR is and the explanation and, you know, you there's just an unsteadiness often to it. So, you're very, you're really thrilled when you see something like Fleabag that had so so much certainty in in its uh, execution. And the first year of Killing Eve, there was just so much certainty in the performances and what they were about. You're always appreciative of that. And then I think you're when you work in TV, you're aware of that sophomore slump or the third year mm-hmm. when you feel like the writer room may be getting exhausted. And so you're aware when a show not only pushes back past that as Breaking Bad did, but just triumphs. And, I mean, a lot of times you can you can almost hear the network notes, yes. things that are explained beyond the place where they need to be. And so when shows don't end up doing that, it, I appreciate it. I would say that, um, you know, uh, the only worry in this time when we're all becoming conglomerates is that we'll lose, you know, FX's ability to make the Americans, which is not really... I imagine a show that, like a place like Disney would want to make or or Apple would want to make because it's, you know, they'll be saying, well, what about American values and things like that? But it's, right. it's that kind of adventurousness. And especially what Joe and Joel did with the second season, where suddenly they made it about offspring, too. I just thought it was like a, a triumph in second-year execution. Well, and uh, how did you feel? I know for bo- you know both all these shows that we're talking about, you know whether it's Breaking Bad uh, or The Americans, uh, like you know the finale. There's so much uh, there's so much emphasis put on the finale. How did you guys feel about the series finales for both The Americans and for Breaking Bad? I loved the finale of Breaking Bad. I thought it was an absolute triumph. I you know there was no way that Walt couldn't die, and yet I thought that uh, Vince managed to redeem him. I, I thought it was just splendid. And I think my uh, 
thrill with the Americans is usually uh, endings are get more anxious and more claustrophobic or more busy. And I think what Americans did is I thought it made all of its kind of earth shattering turns, but it actually got quieter, which I thought was an interesting way to go. Like it said, all its fireworks were, I think it was the third episode from the end. And much like The Sopranos, which I always thought was great in the way it structured seasons, it, it tended to get quieter and calmer the closer it got to the end of each season. And I think that's what was amazing about The Americans. And uh, I want to make sure that we talk about your other pick, Michelle, uh, Bob's Burgers. Tell me, are you a big animated fan, or what is it that uh, appeals to you about this show? It's not uh, a love of animation, particularly. I just think it's one of the best written shows on TV. I think it is consistently hilarious. Mm-hmm. I mean, the characters are marvelous. It's one of the few shows that makes me laugh out loud almost every episode. And that's very, you know, that's hard to do. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yeah. Can I uh, do an honorable mention? Of course. I was going to ask you guys if you had any honorable mentions. We probably have too many for this, but High Maintenance, Mm. which um, I, you know, saw when it was online, but I just think what it's doing on HBO is kind of structurally amazing. You're always looking for, as maybe this is us as showrunners, you're always looking for different structures on TV. Because I think TV, you know, a lot of it, tends to kind of land in the same, you know, Sid Fields kind of structure of life. And I just think the way High Maintenance kind of surrounds an idea and then comes at it from like five or six different directions, and they just start resonating the deeper you get into it, and all doing it in such a short time span is kind of, uh, I, I actually think people will back on it as one of those revelations that they maybe missed when it was on. Right. Uh, to travel on. And then, obviously, the other honorable mention for, us is, for me is Catastrophe. Yes. Which, um, you know, was, uh, it, it, it has such real rhythms to it. It's kind of amazing as this comic energy that you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to go. So it really has a strong element of surprise that you're often lacking in other half hours. Yeah. And the one other show I'm going to mention is The Sopranos, which I fully recognize isn't this decade, but it is if you just rewatched it, which I did. <laughs> and it really is, it holds up and it's just brilliant. Well, that's the thing. In this era, you know, uh, you can kind of make any show the best show of the decade because you can revisit almost, especially the exactly. one The one good thing maybe with all these streaming services is these libraries coming finally, you know, of shows yeah. becoming available. Um Robert, I want to ask you about Twin Peaks just quickly. Uh, I assume you were a fan of the original run, or at least part of it, <laughs> like most yes. of us? Yeah, very much. It was an appointment. Uh, we were, I guess, in college. No, just out of college, and it was appointment viewing before that was even a concept. Or no, when that was a concept, I guess. So we always loved it, but it also, um, you know, it, it, this felt a little more like Moho and Drive than the original Twin Peaks. Right. It felt a little more willing to go for esoteric. We've worked with Comic Often before, and it was just fun to see him get a part that had him play like three roles. Yeah. Um, and I, there were just little like haikus throughout it. I mean, the woman in the booth at the um, at the music hall in Twin Peaks, which seems to get every great band coming along, <laughs> suddenly being pushed out of her booth 
I kind of am a motorcycle gang, and crawling across the dance floor and just screaming. Um, there were all these little unexplained bits yes. that have stayed with you in a very dreamlike way. And I think it will be looked back at, at, at in the same way Mohan Fall uh, Drive is. It's Mohan Drive, right? Yes. No, not Falls. Yeah. Mohan Drive is this, something that, you know, was probably David Lynch at his peak. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just didn't know what was going to happen any, every week when I saw it, every weekend when we saw it, we just didn't know where it was going to go. Um, and it was often silly and it was stupid. And then talking about endings, that is one of the most terrifying endings of any TV series. The scream at the yes. end. Um, it's just, I, I don't, it gives me chills even saying those words. So I, um, I don't know if it was overlooked at the time, because I think a lot of people appreciate it. I do think it will be looked back very fondly in the next few decades. I agree. And I think it's, you know, it was really impressive the way that he managed to do all that sort of odd esoteric stuff, but also address the central questions of like, where is Laura Palmer? And, you know, we didn't get necessarily an answer, but we got as close to an answer as we're going to get. I think so. In that way, it's very much like Leftovers. Leftovers was a show that had, you know, I thought its first season was, was not as very good. Right. Uh, but then each season got better. And I think it obviously came to an, um, a climax that, answered the question and kind of blew up the concept at the same time. So that's another one. We just could go on for hours about all these shows, obviously. Well, I have to also tell you uh, before I let you go that uh, for both myself and Darren, uh, the Good Fight is going to be on our list of uh, best dramas of the decade. We love it very much. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That's really nice. Really nice. And uh, is there? Are, where are we in the in the course of the new season? Are you guys in production? Uh, we finished writing the first script. Uh, the second write, uh, script is being written, and we start shooting in about three weeks. It's a little later this year because of the oh, need to not overlap so drastically with uh, Evil, because Evil's still in production. I see, okay. And certainly everything's going to work out fine with with uh, Diane and Kurt, right? Everything's going to be fine, even though that <laughs> it's going to be fine, right? <laughs> I'll just say, we'll just say this, it will be answered in the first episode. Okay. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time uh, and talking TV with me. If you ever want to talk about TV and the best shows, that's the conversation we love more than anything. <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you so much, and I'll let you guys get back to work. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Bye. That wraps it up for this week's episode of Best of Shows, and that also ends our year of Best of Shows. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to us, for downloading, uh, and for uh, talking to us online about the TV shows that you liked and didn't like. Uh, you can always tweet at us. I'm at Darren Franich. She's at Kristen G. Baldwin. Uh, thank you so much to Robert and Michelle King for talking to us this week about their favorite shows on television. And thanks also for making some of our favorite shows shows on television. Um, we always love hearing from listeners. If you like us, give us a rate, give us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com. Let us know what you think. We love hearing criticism because, unfortunately, we are critics, so we have to take it so we can also keep dishing it out. I should have a catchphrase, but I don't, so goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>